Hello and welcome everyone to Restorative Justice on the Rise. Our edition today is featuring uh, a, quite a, a really powerful voice and presence in the field of nonviolence and the deep overlap that, of course, applies to restorative practices and to our justice system. And I'm so honored and delighted to introduce to you today in just a moment our guest. Um, before I do that, I just want to thank you for being a part of Restorative Justice on the Rise over all these years. We were founded in 2011 and feature dialogues with over 150 global practitioners, academics, advocates, and more in the field of restorative justice and peace building, including today's guest who has been with us in the years past uh, from the Meta Center for Nonviolence. And we are interested in providing a public platform that's common, Creative Commons-based. You will find all of the dialogues at restorativejusticeontherise.org. You can find webinars and resources there as well. We've expanded our offerings to include a lot of different things that you can involve yourself in. Our podcasts are available at iTunes and Spotify. And we also have a U.S.-based map of resources where you can post your organization's information. We wish it was a global map, and we're working on that. But for now, if you are located in the United States and you're interested in finding practitioners and resources in your area, please refer to that. It's on the landing page, again, at restorativejusticeontherise.org. Now, today's session is going to be presentation style for a while, and then towards the end of our time together, which is up to an hour, um, Michael Nagler is wanting to hear from you. So if you would like to answer, or excuse me, pose a question or make a comment, please press star 2 on your keypad or alternatively um, get yourself over to the webcast pane where the slide of Mahatma Gandhi is currently uh, pictured and you'll see a place to submit your web questions. Make sure you submit them under the Q&A tab so that we get those in the queue and can read them for you on your behalf. Thank you so much. You're, you're an integral part of this conversation and ongoing dialogue, so um, please participate. Don't be shy. So without further ado, again, welcome to you just joining us today. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. I'll be your host for this dialogue with Michael Nagler. And just a few things to know about Michael Nagler. <laughs> Um, a long life of devotion to nonviolence, um, a presence of peace and of kindness and of wisdom is how I would describe Michael. And he is a professor emeritus of classics and comparative literature at UC Berkeley, where he co-founded the Peace and Conflict Studies program in which he taught the immensely popular nonviolence course that was webcast in its entirety as well as PAX 90, Meditation, and a sophomore seminar called Why Are We Here? 
great writing on the meaning of life for 15 years. Among other awards, he received the Jamnalal Bayai, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Michael, International Award for Promoting Gandhian Values Outside India in 2007, joining other distinguished contributors to nonviolence as Archbishop Desmond Tutu and peace scholar and activist Johann Galtung in receiving this honor. He is the author of the Nonviolence Handbook, a guide to practical action from 2014, as well as the Search for a Nonviolent Future, which received a 2002 American Book Award, and also Our Spiritual Crisis, Recovering Human Wisdom in a Time of Violence, 2005, the Upanishads with Sri Eknath Eswarian in 1987, and other books, as well as many articles on peace and spirituality. And of course, um, he is the founder and president of the board of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. He's presented at the UN most recently, I believe just um, this, this fall, and perhaps he'll share with us about that. Um, so, Michael, I just um, want to thank you so much for being with us today, and welcome. Well, thank you so much, Molly. That was an, a wonderful introduction, which I will try to live up to. <laughs> and uh, that is, incidentally, Jamnalal Bajaj. It's uh, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, everyone, uh, welcome. I'm very glad to, uh, that we're at least having this virtual conversation. And you can see from our opening slide that the Meta Center, our mission statement or the short version of it is helping people practice nonviolence more safely and more effectively. And that is a science which the world is beginning to learn how to use, and that's very gratifying. So if we could go to the next slide, Molly, I just want to share with people what uh, my agenda is for speaking with you uh, in this hour. First, I want to think about the, the critical issue, and that's singular, the critical issue facing us today, and uh, what kind of progress we are making. Then uh, take a some time to discuss what META has been doing about this for lo these many years and how it's focused recently. And finally, and perhaps most interestingly, what, what we each of us can do about it. So uh, I'm, I'm sitting here in my office in uh, Petaluma, California. I do not have my face mask on, but when I go outside, I do have to have it on um, because I'm sure you've all read about the terrible wildfires that are going on about 100 miles north of here and then down south also. And uh, I, I guess I have to start off on a rather serious note uh, because we all know in the back of our mind that there are two ways that life as we know it on this planet could come to an end uh, in our lifetime, even in my lifetime, which is getting close to its natural end. Um, and this is a, an absolutely unprecedented and new experience for all of us, and that is part of the reason why people are not responding, um, but there are other reasons that we'll get to in a little bit. 
So those two ways that we could lose everything, uh, and I promise I'm not going to dwell on the negative much longer, but those two ways are, of course, the destruction of the climate of our planet uh, and or there could be an outbreak of nuclear war. Now, what I want to present to you as a, a way of thinking about these drastic issues is to say that they're both forms of violence. One is violence toward the earth carried out by most members of our species, at least the ones in the industrial world, and the other has to do with violence towards one another. But knowing that they're both forms of violence uh, is actually helpful, and it's not actually an idea that we read very often. In response to one of the recent uh, uh, massacres that took place in our country, a mass shooting, the headline the next day was uh, dot, 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 detailed. They're going to give you the details, but they'll never give you a chance to think about the underlying cause, and that's why we can't work our way to a solution. Now, I had one experience that helped me focus on what the underlying problem is and where the leverage is to change it. Uh, at the Meta Center, we're involved with a remarkable institution. It was a dream of Mahatma Gandhi's, and it came to life uh, oh, about 30 years ago now, and it's now called Unarmed Civilian Peacekeeping. And this is where people go into uh, conflict areas with not armed only with nonviolence training, and they interpose themselves in conflicts in various ways. And it's been a remarkably successful and, and very dramatic innovation. And I'm going <clears> to <throat> talk later on about how that fits in to an overall shift to a nonviolence world. But while I was still teaching at Berkeley, I had the opportunity to have lunch with uh, one of my colleagues and a good friend. He was the guy to go to for anything having to do with international peace. And so I had lunch with Ernie and I told him about this uh, development, this organization, explained to him there are about 20 groups that are doing it all around the world and have remarkable successes. Knockwood, nobody has been killed uh, doing this. And he said, that is fascinating, Mike. It's absolutely fascinating. So I took the next step, which we do in the academic world. I said, okay, Ernie, look, why don't we call together a symposium and I'll share this with your other colleagues? And he said, no. Uh, and I said, excuse me? <laughs> you know, I just told him of some a remarkable development in his own field, which he knew nothing about, and he didn't want me to share it with his uh, department. So a couple of days later, I called him up and forced him to tell me why. And he said words that have kind of shaped the latter part of my career. He said, it's not their culture. So we have a culture that is conveyed, which is embodied, primarily in the mass media, but it also pervades much of science, our religious institutions, and education. And that culture is based on an underlying narrative. 
which people normally don't articulate, but which is nonetheless very much shaping and limiting their vision of life and their options and their sense of what they can and cannot do about problems. And that underlying narrative, which is really not very new, it's in terms of cultural evolution, it's only been with us since the Industrial Revolution here in the West. And it, it essentially says that the universe is made of material, that the processes in the universe are random, they're without meaning, and that therefore uh, each individual entity in the universe, like a human being, for example, is separate from one another, from other human beings, from other animals, from the rest of the planet. And therefore, the natural modus operandi for these separate material things uh, is competition and violence. And this, it is very difficult to escape this story, to exit from it. I recently read a brilliant and beautiful book called What is Life? by two brilliant scientists, Lynn Margulis and Dorian Sagan. Sagan. Uh, and, but as I read it, I began to realize that they're starting from a wrong assumption and going to the wrong conclusion and having a wrong prescription all because of this underlying narrative. So the, long, the wrong assumption, the base that they start from, and this is a direct quote from the book, life is material. They therefore come to the conclusion that the future of the human race is in the hands of people like Elon Musk and we're to fly up in the sky and inhabit other planets. I should say, this book was written in 1995. I'm not sure people would be so sanguine about that prospect today. But also, they give a very strong impression that life will go on. That's another direct quote. Life will go on. There's nothing we can do about it. When you come into town, when I drive into work here on uh, Bodega Avenue, I, the, the last two billboards that I pass before I get to my office, one of them says, may the best dream win. And that's an advertisement for the California lottery. And there are two underlying assumptions there. One, that life is a competition. Somebody has to win, everybody else has to lose. And competitions are the way to organize the world because the best people always win in them. There's no such thing as Donald Trump, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, what you should dream about, the limitation, the human being is limited to a vision of success, which is defined as having money. And then the next billboard is uh, from a much more benign institution, the Kaiser Permanente Medical System, and it says, thrive your way. And it, it shows an individual, never a group, except for possibly uh, a biological family, never a community, thriving as defined imagistically as having a lot of fun, being at your leisure, and doing it your way. In other words, it is, is encouraging uh, separateness and self-centeredness. And I'm sorry to dwell on this, but the fact is 
that we're exposed to messages like this something on the order of 5,000 times a day, and very few people can escape that. But I'm happy to say that this underlying narrative that supports that value system of materialism, separateness, competition, and violence is breaking up. And so, Molly, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, a new story, so-called, is starting to be developed and become somewhat more, get a little bit more traction in the public, and it has two sources, broadly speaking. One is what we call the wisdom tradition or the perennial philosophy that's been around since recorded history. Uh, and it in turn has two sources. One is with indigenous civilizations and another is embedded in what we call the major religions of the world. Primarily the Vedantic uh, tradition of ancient India. The other source is new. And it's a remarkable development, and I think we should all be quite familiar with it. And that is called uh, the new science. It, it's a science which sees the world in an entirely different way. And uh, this story is um, very different. It says that the world is, the universe is an interconnected whole, that it is not material, it primarily, but it is spiritual, and that it is full of meaning and purpose. Even in this book that I just referred to, What is Life?, they talk about a mammal-like sense of purpose that's detectable even in what we call uh, innate matter, in, in, in lifeless matter. So just to... Molly, if we could have the next slide, I'm going to show you two versions of the, the new story, the central features of it. One is looking at the universe as a whole, and the other, the most important one that we'll see in a moment, has to do with how we are to look at human nature. So uh, here are three really major characteristics of this new and emerging story. The first is the way it describes re existence is, I paraphrase, in this sentence, consciousness taking the form of energy creates matter, or rather creates the appearance of matter. This is called downward causality by one physicist, Amit Goswami from the University of Oregon. And he has uh, basically turned the old story on its head. The old story says we're matter, and somehow matter is energetic, even though it's uh, inert. And somehow all of that turmoil creates something called consciousness, which we cannot define, don't know anything about. And so therefore scientists up to, up to now, up to recently, have taken two modes of dealing with matter, or with consciousness, I mean, or rather not dealing with it. One is uh, to call it an emergent property, 
which means that it pops out of matter with which it has no connection and no similarity. Matter exists in space-time. It's what Descartes, Descartes called a race extensa. It's uh, limited in space and time. Consciousness is not. Uh, how they come from one another, no one has any idea. The other main way of dealing with it, other than calling it an emergent property, which is really just to label our ignorance, is to ignore it. But uh, in the ancient worldview, and this is most articulate, I think, uh, in ancient India, that model is turned on its head, and the universe is said to arise in a very different way. That primarily, it exists of consciousness. Consciousness takes the form of energy, and it creates not matter exactly, but the appearance of matter. And that's called maya in Sanskrit, and it has recently been dramatically confirmed. I mean, recently in terms of uh, cultural history, dramatically confirmed by the discovery of quantum theory and the realization that solid matter is not solid or material. So another really major feature of consciousness, and now again to use the scientific term, and again this comes from uh, quantum experiments, is that uh, consciousness or whatever quantum things are, is are non-local. That is, they can be in contact with one another over vast distances instantaneously. Now, that non-locality, which is the scientific term, is simply picking up the unity of existence or non-duality, as it was called in ancient India, in the wisdom tradition. So you see, in each case, we have got a... Uh, a scientific term which has recently been coined for an important feature of the perennial philosophy or the wisdom tradition. And uh, what emerges finally and most significantly for us from all of this is that the, unity, the universe exhibits purpose, as I say. And if we look at that purpose in terms of the last five billion years of evolution on Earth, I don't think it's very difficult to see what that purpose is, and that is it is leading to higher and higher consciousness. Now, to be perfectly accurate, it doesn't mean that consciousness is evolving. Consciousness is unchanging and non-local and doesn't go through any kind of evolution, but forms life forms in particular are developing with higher and higher consciousness. And that would seem to be an indication of where life is headed and where we can articulate our own individual trajectory. That was why I taught that course on the meaning of life for so long and why the young people got so much out of it. So now, uh, Molly, if you could go to the next slide called The New Story of Us, this is where the rubber hits the road for us human beings. This new story is saying, and I'm look, treating it as a kind of broad consensus between the wisdom tradition and scientists, 
it says that we're primarily spiritual beings, not primarily material beings. We have a body. Because of our spiritual nature, we are deeply interconnected with one another. And so, for example, you have the recent scientific discovery. It dates back to 1980, I believe, the discovery of what they call mirror neurons, which are those structures in our own central nervous system and in our brain by which we directly reflect, uh, capture, imitate the state of mind or the movements that we observe in other people or even other creatures around us. So we in the nonviolence community are very excited about this because this shows you a kind of physiological pathway for what we've been saying all along, that if you threaten me and I respond in a non-threatened way, I'm actually affecting your physiology. I'm changing your a nervous system's response, it's not just a matter of you looking at me and saying, oh, that's interesting and I think I'll change. It's something that is actually, I'm actually programming your brain in a funny way. So, let's get back to our story. This is the third point now. <clears throat> they used to be called bullet points, but uh, that's way too violent, we call them. We, at Meta, we like to call them spinning wheel points. So the third one, the third such, is that because, again, of our spiritual nature, we have untold inner resources. And what is slowly emerging is that the most important of these is probably our capacity for nonviolence. As Gandhi said, <clears throat> nonviolence is the law of the humans. It's really the uh, emblem of our development beyond the animal stage. And finally, and most importantly, that we can take charge of our individual destiny. And when we do that in the right way, it can sum up to a common destiny of humanity. So the incessant message that we're getting that we shouldn't, we don't need to do anything and we can't do anything, um, except buy something, <laughs> is uh, completely contradicted by this new story, which is trying to emerge here and there. Let me uh, just give you a couple of contrasting examples that, that bring these two realities out. I uh, am making with uh, Meta a documentary film on nonviolence. We'll be talking a bit about our projects in a little bit. But uh, this film, which we're calling The Journey Home, because we're saying that nonviolence is, is a discovery. of It's a kind of journey of self-discovery. And in that film, we hope to embed a brief conversation with a Marine Corps captain, now retired, whose name is Matthew Ho, H-O-H. And he talks about a phenomenon the most recent name for which is moral injury. And we were just talking yesterday with an expert on restorative justice who comes from a law enforcement background, and uh, he was saying how he has noticed among police officers that no police officer who ever used especially lethal force 
against anyone has not suffered from that psychologically. And, <clears throat> excuse me, what Captain Ho said is that people, when they kill or are involved in killing, they are doing something which they know is wrong. And then he used the phrase, which betrays who they are. So we're getting negative evidence there. Uh, and incidentally, the appalling suicide rate of almost 20 a day that's going on among our servicemen and women is part of that negative evidence that when we injure another person, we are violating our own nature in a very deep way. And incidentally, that is borne out by the mirror neuron scientists also who say that when you hurt another person, you actually are participating in that pain, though you may not realize it. Now let's put that into sharp contrast with another captain in the military, a young fellow by the name of Paul Chappelle, who was a captain in the U.S. Army, recently retired, now very active in the peace movement. And he pointed out to a friend of ours whom we have interviewed in our film that uh, he doesn't know of a single case of a person experiencing PTSD or moral injury, whatever you want to call it, from doing an act of compassion. Let me give you another contrasting example just to show you the intensity of the, of the struggle that we are now going through as a civilization. Uh, you probably all know I bet most of you know, if you remember, there was an episode on a train in France, oh, oh, six, eight months ago, I think, where uh, one of these would-be mass shooters showed up on the train with an assault rifle and pointed it at people. Happily, it jammed, and happily, there were two American servicemen out of uniform sitting there. They said, let's go. They jumped that guy along with three other European passengers. They knocked him down, breasted the gun away, beat him unconscious, and uh, they became heroes in all the press coverage, which was extensive. And there's now a feature film being built around this episode. I bet you have not heard that in 2014, in April, Two field team members from Nonviolent Peace Force, which is the biggest and most developed of these uh, in groups doing unarmed civilian peacekeeping, which I tried to interest my political science colleagues in, they were there in a UN internally displaced camp in South Sudan, in the state, the Boer state. And uh, suddenly that camp, which was you know, supposed to be protected by the UN, it was overrun by a militia. They came screaming in, firing weapons, waving machetes. And these two guys, one of them, uh, Derek Oakley from the UK, another one, uh, Andres Gutierrez from Latin America, they ducked into a hut where they found five women and 11 children huddling in terror. And sure enough, 
Within minutes, the militia burst in. They were surprised to see Derek and Andres. They ordered them out. Derek and Andres were very well trained. They glanced at one another. They knew this might be the end of their life. They knew what to do. They took out their badges and showed them the badges and said, I'm sorry, we're international peace officers and we're not leaving. The militia was stunned and they backed out. And that happened two more times. So there were three attacks, and all three occasions, the presence of these calm, well-trained peace warriors protected those people. Outside that hut, 60 people were massacred in 20 minutes. But inside the hut, there was no violence because of the presence of these two unarmed civilian peacekeepers. So... I, I hope, you know, if, if it were possible, I would stop here and have a conversation and uh, make sure we're all roughly on the same page uh, with this idea that there are two really sharply contrasting narratives of human potential that are jostling now. And that what has to happen for us to rescue ourselves from the dangers that we're facing is the emergence of this new story. So let me move on now to the second point in our agenda and just give you an overview of what META is doing about this now that we've been doing for such a long time. We have, of course, um, a website, which I'll be sharing with you online in just a minute, metacenter.org, and it has a lot of material, uh, many resources, uh, we have two radio programs, and the one that comes from right downstairs in our building here in, in Petaluma, uh, we have a nonviolence in the news, but we also have inaugurated a feature yesterday called Restoring Our Community, where we feature one of the many very active folks who are involved in restorative justice uh, here in our community. We operate, in other words, both very locally as well as internationally. And our plan for restorative justice, and Molly knows this very well, is to first concentrate on the schools. And when we get it established in the schools, to move on to getting it established in the criminal justice system. And when that a tremendous task is done, and who knows how long that will take, we uh, could, I think, then approach the whole question of international conflict, namely war. The way it's going to move, we, as we see it, from the schools to the jails to the international community is by articulating why and how they, restorative justice is so tremendously successful and the, in other words, why and how it's successful is because it's based on this new paradigm, new story, which is so much more accurate reflection of what human beings actually are. And I know that Molly has shared with you uh, one of our animations on the subject of restorative justice, and I hope you'll get a chance to look at it where we at least touch on this. Uh, recently, on our radio program, we interviewed Dominic Barter, uh, who talked about 
altruism, doubt, uh, restorative circles, told some wonderful stories, and that's available also on our website. As I mentioned before, we're working on a film called The Journey Home, and I'm happy to say that that film will not be an isolated thing, but it'll be part of a very large campaign, uh, thanks to some of the connections we've been able to develop recently. So it will be, I hope, within about six months, we're going to have a 30-minute film suitable for classroom use, uh, possibly by October 2nd of 2019, which is Gandhi's 150th birth anniversary. We'll have a longer film, which is suitable for PBS, and eventually, hopefully, even a 90-minute version that could be shown in theaters. Uh, we have written a number of books, in addition to the ones I've written myself. Our executive director, Stephanie Van Hook, has written a beautiful children's book. She was a Montessori teacher, a beautiful children's book called Gandhi Searches for Truth. Those are all on our website. We, of course, give talks like the one I'm giving right now with you all. We teach a certificate course in nonviolence. And I want to draw your attention in particular because, uh, because of its historic potential to a project that META did not originate but that we are collaborating with. And I'll show you in a minute the URL for that also. That project is called Nonviolence Now. It's the result of a contest which some friends of ours won which gave them access to an ad company based in Atlanta, Georgia, which is now placing millions, literally millions of spots on the Internet, social media, and so forth, and is giving us a full-page ad in Newsweek, which should be coming out toward the end of this month. And Nonviolence Now will take you to a special landing page that they've created and If you click on Learn More, you go to a short list of organizations, one of which is the Meta Center. Go to our special landing page. And the hope is to really be able to do something which we've been trying to do for so many years without a whole lot of success, and that is to mainstream nonviolence. And that means mainstreaming the core of the new story. So... Uh, As you can see from all of these projects, we really need to change on many levels. And uh, I want to read a very brief quote from someone that we interviewed for our film, a remarkable person. Her name is Pramila Jayapal. You may perhaps have heard of her. She is the first uh, East Indian-born member of Congress in the United States ever. She's a representative from Seattle's 92nd District. Uh, And she is a passionate advocate uh, for peace and justice, including restorative justice, which she is trying to introduce at the federal level. And she was the first member of Congress to go down to the border and visit where uh, children were being separated from their parents, gave a passionate address about that, which is on YouTube. 
And so let me read you this just very brief quote from Pramila. She says, we have a strategic plan for the office that is very specific, focused on what legislation we want to pass, but also what is the movement we're trying to build. Because there are some things that are not about passing legislation, they're about building a movement. And there are some things that are about making a cultural narrative shift. So those are the three levels that Pramila identifies that I think very usefully. In other words, whenever we do a project, we should be thinking how this could be a building block in a movement and how that could add up to a major cultural shift. So I think we're ready now for the third and final stage of my presentation to you. And uh, Molly, if we could move to the next slide. This is absolutely. Thank you. This is something we're Molly that you are. Yes. <laughs> this is something <laughs> that you're very familiar with. We have created this model of how the millions, literally, of projects that millions upon millions of good people are dealing with could be articulated into a single effort so that they could we could all get out of our silos and and join forces i mean for example one of the things that irks me is that the new story people whom i feel passionate about are not interacting at all with the nonviolence people whom i feel equally passionate about so this is partly a question of integrating Michael Nakler, but partly a question of making our work much more effective. There are many features to this model. The one that I'll point out from this slide is that it's based on three concentric circles. We have to first work upon our personal empowerment, our individual empowerment. The next thing we should pay attention to is creation of constructive programs, which is includes uh, restorative justice. If you look down in the democracy and social justice wedge, the third one over is restorative justice to replace the prison industrial complex. When you've done all that, when you've developed your own personal empowerment, and we're going to say more about that in a second, and you've built the constructed, you've constructed the institutions like unarmed civilian peacekeeping, restorative justice, new economies, and so forth, and there still is evil in the world, then you have to confront that evil nonviolently and you go out to the third circle, which is called Satyagraha. But Molly, if you could do a very dramatic thing now and push the down arrow and take us into that inner circle. I think this is very real technological prowess here. here. <laughs> <laughs> and I meant to say roadmap as well. I hope that, that terminology is more precise, roadmap. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. I didn't use the word. Roadmap is indeed the name of this project. And it is placed at the website for people to um, really explore more deeply and I believe to download as well. Correct. Yes, it can be downloaded in the in the form of okay. uh, different sizes and shapes of posters, 
And now, Molly, I have some uh, wonderful news for you, which you will enjoy very much. And that is, uh, before too long, Roadmap is going to be a board game. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So this is something that Stephanie is uh, working on with a, a group that does educational resources. And so people are going to be sitting around in their actual living rooms, paralleling our virtual living room, playing the roadmap game all over the world pretty soon. So we have now uh, zoomed into our personal uh, empowerment part. And we, over the years, we've developed five practices that anybody can do. I don't need to wait for an organization. Uh, the first and most important, uh, well, I don't know, they're all equally important, but the, the, the one that clears the decks and gets all the others made possible for reasons that should be clear from the beginning of our talk is to use utmost discrimination in exposing yourself to the mass media. The mass media of today are the primary vehicle for the old story, which is causing us to sleepwalk over a cliff of disaster. And if we need to wake up and get active, uh, we need to keep that kind of conditioning out of our mind. The next thing we can do, now we've saved a lot of time because we're not watching TV, we're hardly reading the newspaper, not on the Internet very much, anyway, in a very discriminating way. We've got so much time on our hands. Well, what should we do? One thing is uh, that we recommend is to learn nonviolence, and I'll be sharing some URLs with you in a second. And embedded in that learning of nonviolence, I would now like to emphasize, is its relationship to the whole new paradigm. The new story. Thirdly, because we are primarily spiritual beings and because our present industrial civilization knows nothing about this and gives us no indication how to develop it, much less that we have it there to develop, we recommend that everybody take their own form, take up their own form of the spiritual practice. That's what the little center uh, icon is all about. And when you're doing these three things, the next uh, item that we propose is that people should try to be much more personal with one another. You know, one of the ways that our civilization has uh, operated is to isolate ourselves from one another through especially, you know, new technologies, so forth. You know, when I was Growing up, we used to. I used to enjoy going to the gas station, the local gas station. I didn't know I was polluting the environment at that time, but I could go and you know talk to Jim and Harry, who ran the gas station. Now I just push a piece of plastic into a machine. It's very convenient, but it's leaving us feeling very isolated from one another, and that's why some people pick up weapons and make huge mistakes with that. And so then finally. Pick the issue that means most to you and that corresponds to your inner capacities. Like where, where are your capabilities answer to the needs of the world? And get active. And in doing so, we really strongly recommend that you have, what should we call it, a, at least an elevator speech, 
in which embodies your version of the new story and explain to people whenever you get a chance why you're doing what you're doing. They're, you know, they all say, well, you know, why do you bother about the whales? <laughs> and you say, you know, because, you know, we're deeply interconnected with all of life and life is not just these material objects and we cannot make ourselves happy by acquiring things. We cannot make ourselves secure by hurting others. We're all in this together. Uh, make up your own version of that story and uh, tell it whenever you get a chance. So uh, those, that's that, that's our recommendation for how uh, each one of us can play a, a role in this huge cultural shift which we have to bring about. And I would encourage us not to underestimate our power as an individual. Just remember, Mahatma Gandhi was one person. He came back to a country of 250 million, and within about 15 years, he had them all moving in one direction and, and changed history in a remarkable, dramatic way and left us with a tremendous legacy to further develop. So finally, Molly, our last slide, if I could just share with the people on the call some helpful websites. You see our own site, metacenter.org, and Nonviolence Now. I've spoken about this um, ad-based campaign that's going on now for a whole year, stretching from Gandhi's 149th anniversary, where I spoke at the UN, to the 150th, October 2nd, 2019. Our own landing page within Nonviolence Now, if you wanted to go to that directly, is nonviolence.education. Wagingnonviolence.org is at present uh, a collection of op-eds that uh, are very insightful, usually very well written by the top writers that we have in the field of nonviolence. And I'm happy to say that Waging Nonviolence is going to become a hub for many nonviolence organizations, including uh, the Meta Center. And finally, one other kind of resource if you are learning nonviolence, point number two in our personal empowerment project, if you go to nvdatabase.swarthmore.edu, you will come to something called the Global Nonviolent Action Database, GNAD, which has recently logged its 1,000th campaign of nonviolence. And they're, they're very well indexed and organized. You can look up ones that are primarily women-led, primarily about the environment, you know, all these different uh, categories, and read a story and an analysis of that campaign. Well, uh, that is the presentation that I wanted to share with you today, and I'm very grateful to you, Molly, for giving me this opportunity. We have some time now. If people have comments or questions, I'll be more than happy to try to respond. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. And if I may, I'd love to add to your wonderful resource list here that people are seeing on the slide screen, um, that is the webcast pane, that um, the Dominic Barter interview that is posted is 
pretty easy to find. The, um, the topic was Dominic Barter on life, justice, and doubt. And I know that he's a mutual friend of so many of ours um, and really appreciated that interview that you conducted uh, just last month, I believe, with That's Dominic. That's correct. And right here in this room. Yes. <laughs> and, and I appreciate, too, just the fact that you were willing to go into an area of exploration like you did on that interview with him around mm -hmm. what Dominic calls um, his work is based basically in doubt. And yeah. um, so listen to that interview to find out more about Dominic's take on mm -hmm. his, his beautiful work in restorative practices um, around yeah. the world. And, and I'm just so yeah. happy that the two of you are connected. Um, there, there have been some wonderful questions coming in. Again, if you'd like to submit one on the webcast, please use the webcast pane. It will be put into our queue. Uh, if you'd like to ask a live question right now um, where we just open up your mic, you can also press start two on your keypad. So let's start out. Um, thank you, Laura, for your question. Um, she asks, is human consciousness the root of systems transformation? And if so, how do we shift the need to punish? Uh, well, as uh, we who do restorative justice uh, believe, there really is no need to punish. The, the real need is to awaken, to educate, and to restore community and to use conflict as a way to um, build deeper relationships and community. So uh, any sense of punishment, I think, is, uh, is almost negligible and not essential going forward for the human race. And I'm reminded that... Uh, when Gandhi was still in South Africa ex experimenting with his ashram, with his community there, uh, some of the teenagers did something that uh, was not acceptable. They had to do something about that. And he faced a dilemma because, as he says, in Satyagraha in South Africa, in an ashram, punishment is out of the question. So what did he do? He took the penance on himself. Because he said, uh, I have failed you, and therefore I am going to undergo a penitential act to help myself and to awaken you in the process. He didn't say that explicitly, but, but that was part of how his action worked. And that's how a great deal of nonviolence works, that instead of inflicting suffering on an opponent, which is the old story way of doing things, we voluntarily take some risks, some suffering onto ourselves in order to awaken the opponent. And uh, you know, that, that is how the new system works, and, and that's how he discovered in that, in that one moment, by his instinctive feeling that punishment would be wrong. Now, there are people that have to be restrained, of course. There could be unreachable, they could be dangerous to themselves and others, and 
we in the restorative justice field are usually uh, quite quite aware of this fact that because people get panicky when you talk about restorative justice. They say, what about, you know, mass killers or some kind of terrible thing like that? Well, you know, there are people that have to be kept out of trouble. But the the main approach should not, in the new vision of the world, that it should not be punitive, it should be restorative. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you bringing that up, too, in the restorative justice field. From my observation, that's one of the key um, misunderstandings yes. and assumptions mm-hmm. of what restorative justice is. Uh, it's not about letting everybody out to run free. Yeah. Um, if yeah. they need to be tended to in a particular manner, and we, you know, we know that many people are in prison due to mental health circumstances, mm-hmm. and those deserve treatment and care in their own right. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone um, is is just going to go out and run in yeah. the streets or be in communities. So, thank yeah, you I'm, for pointing that out. I, there's more questions. So mm-hmm. okay. would you like me to go to the next one? Please. And again, thank you everyone who who has submitted questions. If you would still like to, there's time to, to ask a question live if you'd like, star two on your keypad, um, or submit your question on the webcast pane. Um, let's see, Robert, thank you. Thank you for your question um, and your statement. Um, he says, Hypocrisy in systems can be very disillusioning. How do we hold or mind the gap between values and actual practices for one another? Thank you for that great question. Yes, uh, you know, Robert, that is very thoughtful. And I read a study recently that concluded that the very large amount of, quote, uh, depression which we're experiencing in our society right now, and that is really a misdiagnosis. And what we're really experiencing is demoralization. And that's all because of our abdication from truth. And hypocrisy is one example of that. And Gandhiji, as you know, felt that he could not live without truth and nonviolence, that they were opposite sides of the same coin. So I think the practical answer to your very practical question is that we model uh, the world that we wish to bring into being in our own behavior. And uh, we should not underestimate the impact of that. People do have mirror neurons. People are aware that they're doing something wrong. It is bothering them, even though they may boast about it and they may show no outward signs of it. One of the great secrets of nonviolence is that you are modeling a better state of mind, a better behavior, and ultimately a better world that is innately appealing to everyone. So you're actually, it's sometimes said that nonviolence doesn't push people, it pulls them. You show them a better self, and there's Mm. something in them that cannot but respond to that appeal. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Can we take one more question? 
I have time if you have time. Would love to. Um, let's do one more, and then we'll have some closing thoughts. Yeah. Um, th thank you, Mary, from New York, for this question. Um, we have people on from all over. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just so gratifying to, to feel a sense of community in our virtual living room here. So thank you for being an integral part of this conversation today and on other dialogues. It really warms the heart. So um, Mary, um, you say, she says, um, she asks, you say nonviolence is a journey of self-discovery. What personal regulatory practices do you recommend to prevent escalation? Uh, well, in our, on our website and in my book, The Search for Nonviolent Future, on uh, page 108, as a matter of fact, there is a model that we've developed called the escalation curve, and it shows how conflicts do escalate as a result of dehumanization. So what we want to do is to de-escalate conflicts by rehumanization. That, that is precisely what nonviolence is doing. And we do that by, again, as I was saying in response to Robert's question, by showing what's most human in ourselves by responding to the humanity of the opponent, we awaken to some degree the, that humanity in that opponent. It ceases to be an opponent and becomes a partner in restoration and reconciliation. And um, so to, it's a directly proportional, I think, Mary, to the degree that we can humanize our awareness and humanize the uh, awaken the human human awareness of the others to the extent to the extent the exact extent that we do that we are de-escalating conflict and turning conflict into a creative learning process and as gandhi said the effect of the success of our campaign was mathematically proportionate to the purity of our efforts. And I think that's what he meant. Mm. Do you have anything, I mean, that that was a powerful closing right there in and of itself, but is there mm. anything you'd like to leave us with, um, Michael, today before we close? Yeah, you know, I guess there is. Molly, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, these are tough times, and people are starting to say, I can't see any way out, and uh, I feel that way myself sometimes. I can't see how we're going to save ourselves. But whenever I have that thought, I remind myself, there's so much that I can't see. And we can make that more visible uh, with the practices that, you and I are engaged in and with those five steps that are recommended in the roadmap. And if anyone else has any other thoughts, uh, needless to say, uh, we would be more than happy to hear them if they want to write to us at info at metacenter.org or just michael at metacenter.org. Let's keep this conversation going. 
And um, my final thought, I guess, is again a direct quote from Gandhiji, full effort is full victory. Mm. So thank you so much to you, Michael Nagler, and to all of you today for being a part of this conversation and for your wisdom and time. And we really look forward to continuing to support the Meta Center in all the ways that we can. Um, Our global community continues to grow, as you're saying, in these difficult times. We certainly are not alone, and that, that gives me a lot of hope. So um, until next time, until next time, and and thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. You're very welcome, Molly, and and, uh, let's follow this up pretty soon, you and me. Great, great. Thank you, everybody. Until next time. Until next time. Bye for now.